Well, you ready to go? Yeah. Jump in our study. Uh, let's, uh, let's pray and commit this time to the Lord. Ask him to show up, be our teacher, and then uh, I'll jump in. Father, uh, we're excited to be here. Uh, it's another week we get to pursue you as a church. It's another week that we get to come in your name, gather around your word under the leadership, the authority of your spirit. And, and, and so we would say, Lord, that we want to hear what your spirit says to the church. And we, we really want to come uh, with open ears, open hearts. God, you're talking about such an important topic today, uh, this topic of that which satisfies the deepest thirst of our life, what it takes to be satisfied. Uh, we pray that you'd speak with power. We pray you'd speak with authority. I pray you'd be with me as I deliver this, that there be great freedom, and that together as a church we come together and hear you. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, the story starts today uh, outside the city. She's grown up in the city. She loves the city. She's proud of the city. She's proud of its heritage. Uh, right outside the city was this plot of land that uh, 2,000 years before Jacob, you know, of, of, of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that Jacob, had given to his favored son, Joseph. And, and then right outside the city, they, he had dug a well. Jacob had dug a well, and it was still giving great water 2,000 years later, this ancient well. And so she's, she's, she's proud of her town. She's proud of her city. She's proud of the heritage of her city. But as proud as she is of her city, she's less proud of her own life. It's just not gone the way that she planned. Um, she's grown up in these streets. She's played with the other little Samaritan girls. When they were young, they used to dream of, of one day having their own homes. They'd play house out in the streets. And they would dream of the days they'd get married and they'd do their little marriage ceremonies and they would have their own families, raise their families, fall in love, uh, live a happy life, grow old together with their husband. And, and yet her life has not worked out that way at all. Um, there's no way she could have known when she was a little girl what was before her that that, that first marriage that she dreamed about would end. And then there'd be a second marriage, and that too would end. And, and then there'd be a third marriage, and she's hoping this would be the one that would last, and, and that marriage ended. And, and then there was marriage number four, and that wedding, and she still remembered. And then there was wedding number five. And, and there was no way that she would know that at this age, this point in her life, at this age in her life, and the stage that, that she wouldn't be married. She would have been married five times. She'd no longer be married. In fact, she'd be actually living with a man, something that she ne said she would never do. And so maybe that's why she's out here on this day. Maybe that's why in the heat of the day at high noon, she's out here with her water jugs on her way to this ancient well that Jacob had given them. No one drew water at midday. It was way too hot. It was hard work. And so the women would come at the end of the day, right before dark, and that's in the cool of the day, that's where they would water, and so, so maybe that's why she was there, because she, she knew there's this very little chance she'd see anyone else. She wouldn't have to deal with the other women and their thoughts that day. And she, as she put the water jugs on her back and to walk out to the well outside the city, little did she know that that day, that trip would change her life forever. Well, today we're, uh, we're continuing this series that we've been in now for the last couple months. It's called Revealed. It's a study of the life and teaching of Jesus through the eyes of one of his best friends, closest followers, a man by the name of the Apostle John. And today we come to John chapter 4 in our study, and 
and uh, we come to one of the most famous conversations of Jesus in his life. Um, and so if you've got your Bibles, let's go to John chapter 4. Now, if you don't have your Bible, feel free to look on with someone who does because it's church, and so they're obligated to be kind to you. <laughs> don't count on that in the parking lot, but, <laughs> but here they will share. I'm, I'm telling you, I promise. So in John chapter 4, we start the story, and it says the Pharisees, now of course Pharisees were one of the groups of religious leaders, the religious establishment, and they heard that Jesus was gaining and he was baptizing more disciples than John, John the Baptist. And so this is still early in Jesus' ministry. Remember, many of Jesus' first followers had been followers of John the Baptist and part of his baptism ministry. And so Here's Jesus and his disciples are out baptizing. Not actually Jesus, but his disciples are baptizing. So they're in the south of the country, and it says in verse 2, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. And so, so he's getting more and more popular, and, and he's coming on the radar of the religious establishment in Jerusalem. And so they're, the Pharisees have heard about this. They're going to go down and check him out, kind of like they had checked out John the Baptist. Remember back in chapter 1. And so Jesus hears of this. He's really not ready to deal with this. It's not really time for conflict in his ministry yet. And so uh, when the Lord hears about this in verse 3, he leaves Judea, that's in the south of the country, and he goes back to Galilee, which is in the north, that's his homeland. And he has to go through, verse 4, the area called Samaria. Now you need to picture this. In the nation of Israel, you've got Judea in the south. That's where Jerusalem is. It's the county. Samaria is in the middle. Galilee, his home, home province, is in the north. And so he's in Judea. He's got to travel north up through Samaria. Now, for this story today, it's important we understand a little bit about Samaria. Uh, the Jews and Samaritans did not get along. And, and I know we've talked about this some in the past. We're not going to go into great detail about this. But uh, this goes back 700 years. Okay, so this is a major racial uh, divide. Uh, you think of maybe the Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland. You think of uh, maybe Serbs and Croatians in Bosnia. Think of blacks and whites apartheid in South Africa. We're talking about a serious racial divide. And one of the things they disagreed on was they both saw themselves as the true people of God and the other people as traitors. And so uh, one of the things, they, they thought about a lot of things, but one of the things they thought about was where was the proper place to worship. Jews believed that the proper place was the temple was Jerusalem. Samaritans believed that there was this holy mountain in Samaria called Mount Gerizim, and it was the place that Israel had first worshipped the Lord when they came in the Promised Land. They believed this was the proper place. And so the bottom line is uh, they just didn't get along. If they lived in the same town, they would, they would not live in the same parts of the town. Uh, they, would, if they would never intermarry. Uh, they would never uh, go to church together. They would... Uh, they, if they, they had a meal, they wouldn't share a meal together, uh, most likely. Uh, probably not share the same dishes because you'd get ritually defiled because you're eating with those people. And so you can kind of see, don't get along. And that just plays an important backdrop in this story today. So anyway, he has to go north to Samaria. And uh, he comes to a town in Samaria called Sychar. And this, uh, this town is near the plot of ground that Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, had given to his son Joseph about 2,000 years b before. Uh, Joseph, you know, of, of technicolor fame. In verse 7, or verse, verse 6, so Jacob's well was there. So Jacob had, had, had dug this well. And, and by the way, interesting little side note, that well is still there today, this well. 
uh, is still there today. It's still over 100 feet deep, and it's still giving good water to this day. It was even deeper in that day. But anyway, uh, there's this well there that, dug, that Jacob had dug 2,000 years, so 4,000 years ago. He dug this well. It's still working. Um, so they, they just don't make things like they used to. But anyway, uh, Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, notice this, Jesus, God in the flesh, and yet he's a real man. Right? He's, he's, he gets tired. He gets thirsty. And so here he is. Uh, he's tired from his journey, and he sits down by the well. It's about the sixth hour, which is noon. They started counting hours from six in the morning. So it's noon. And so he sends his disciples into town. says, hey, guys, could you go hit me Burger King, Carl's Jr., whatever. Bring back some food. You know my Whoppers, how I like them. And so he sends the guys off, and, and so now he's alone at this ancient well. So the, the, so the, the scene is set, stage is set for what's going to happen. And so in verse 7, uh, high noon, this Samaritan woman comes out to draw water. And uh, Jesus says to her, hey, do uh, you have something to drink? I'm thirsty here. Could, could I have some water? And uh, his disciples had gone into town to buy food. And so this is kind of surprising for a couple reasons. Uh, first reason is it's real surprising she's out there at noon. Like, like have you ever carried water? <laughs> like, water is heavy. Uh, one of my hated jobs in my life, it's, it's my job as the head of the family, to carry the five-gallon water buck thing from, from, the, from the garage uh, over my treadmill and into our, our kitchen, you know, when that runs out. And I hate that. It was so heavy. You know, it's like water is heavy. And so imagine that you're going to be taking this uh, clay jar and lowering it down 100 or 200 feet into a well and filling it with water and now bringing it up by hand or, you know, with kind of rolling. I mean, this is hard work. And because it's hard work, the women of that day, uh, they would come at the end of the day, in the cool of the day, to, to do this because it's hard work. And so it's sort of weird that she's out here at noon, which uh, we're not sure why. It very well could be she just wants to avoid the other women of the town because of what we'll see, what she's gone through in her life. But anyway, she's out there. That's surprising. The other thing that's surprising is that Jesus asks her for a drink because he's just crashing through all kinds of social barriers here. Uh, first of all, he's uh, a man. She's a woman. Uh, just one-on-one in that culture, you wouldn't necessarily have a lot of contact. Number two, he's a Jew. She's a Samaritan, so they don't have contact. Uh, they don't drink from the same dishes, so what's he thinking here? On top of that, he's a rabbi, and rabbis don't talk to women. By and large. And so there's just all these reasons why he's sitting there. She's coming in just assuming he's not going to say. And all of a sudden he's like, hey, uh, can I have a drink? And she's like, what? You know, like, come again? Like, you know, I, like, I don't get it. And, and so she says in verse 9, hey, you're a, a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. I'm a woman. Uh, how can you ask me for a drink? I mean, what's going on here? Uh, for Jews don't associate with Samaritans. In fact, in their footnote there, it says, my footnote says, they don't even use the dishes the Samaritans used. And so she's surprised. So Jesus says, well, hey, if you knew the gift of God, like you knew what I had to offer, um, and if you knew who it, who it is that asks you for a drink, like who I am, then I'll tell you, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So he says, hey, hey, I, you're, you're surprised that I'm asking you for some water, uh, Trust me, if you knew what I had to offer, and if you knew who I was, you'd be crossing the street and asking me for some living water. Not just regular water, but some living water. Now, that phrase, living water, 
Uh, this is not a new phrase that Jesus made up. Uh, it's a common phrase in the day. Living water referred to water that's moving, uh, flowing, like water in a brook, a stream, a river, a spring, something that's moving. Uh, are you with me on this? That, like, uh, the opposite would be water in a well, opposite in, in, in a reservoir of some sort. And so, in general, living water is better than regular water. It's kind of like Perrier versus tap water. And so, uh, so he says, hey, if you, if you knew who I was, you knew what I had to offer, you'd be asking me, I'd be giving you running water, not this well water. And so she's kind of thinking, you know, just in terms of natural water. And so she says, she looks at him, and she's kind of baffled, really. She looks at him and says, you know, it's just here he is. He's got no backpack. He's got no uh, luggage. He's got no donkey. Uh, no bottle, no canteens, no uh, water bottle, no sports bottle, you know, nothing. And so she looks at him and she says, uh, sir, um, you've got nothing to draw with. And trust me, this well is really deep. Like, where are you going to get this water, this living water? I mean, are you greater than our father Jacob? Now, she's really proud of this well. Um, are, you, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well, you know, such good water? And drank from him himself, as did his sons, you know, 12 tribes of Israel, and his flocks and his herds. Like, where are you going to get this? And so Jesus says, well, everyone who drinks this water, the problem with it is you get thirsty again. Like, like if you drink this water, you're going to feel good for a while. You're not going to be thirsty. But then, you know, you get thirsty. Tomorrow you have to come back, do it again, right? Then, so, but whoever drinks the water that I will give him, it's kind of like magic water, really, um, that that you will never thirst again. Like you just drink it one time, and it's like the permanent thirst quencher of your life. And on top of that, this water that I give him, it will become like a spring of water welling up to eternal life, like a fountain of life. So he's like, whoa, you know? Never heard of water like that, like magic water. And um, so she says, she, she, she decides to buy in. Verse 15, she says, sir, hey, could you give me this water so I, don't, so I don't, won't get thirsty anymore? It's just permanently quenched. And, I'll, and, I can, and I won't have to keep coming here every day to keep drawing more water. So, so at this point now, Jesus wants to take the conversation to a new level. Uh, she thinks he's talking about some kind of magic water, physical water. He's really talking about a new kind of relationship with God that's going to satisfy the deepest uh, uh, thirst of your life. And so he needs to elevate this conversation from the physical to the spiritual. And so what he does, he says in verse 16, he says, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you just go get your husband and then come on back. So, you know, I've got this amazing gift. I want to present it to you and your husband. Go home and get him. Come back. I'll give you this gift. And, and she says, well, I, I don't really have a husband. Now, of course, this, this is technically true. She's currently single, um, but it's only part of the story, not the full truth. And so Jesus said to her, well, you're right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have that you're living with, he's not really your husband. So what you say, uh, that is it's true. Now, at this point, uh, her cover is blown. I, I, have you ever been there? Like you're, you're in a situation and you're, you're making your best of it. You're just trusting this other person doesn't know something. And, uh, and so you're making your argument and all of a sudden they just blow your cover. They go, yeah, well, what about this? And you're like, oh, I'm so dead. And so he is just kind of blown her cover. 
And so she decides, uh, all of a sudden, her head is spinning. She's like, whoa. I mean, this is something supernatural is going on here. I mean, this is back in a day and age. I mean, there, there are no iPhones. There's no, uh, there's no Internet. There's no way he did a little Googled her and come up with her marriage history, you know? It's like he's a stranger, never been to her town. Her first thought is there is something supernatural. I don't know what's going on here, but it's supernatural. He's got to be a prophet. So she decides to ask him a question. And the question she's going to ask has to do with this one of this long-running debate between Samaritans and Jews about the right place to worship. You know, do we worship here at Mount Gerizim? In fact, right from that well, you can look up and see Mount Gerizim. And it says, is it, is it here or is it? She's going to ask him a theological question. And, and honestly, we don't know if the reason she's asking is because she really wants to know or whether she just wants to take the, the, uh, the heat off, the tension off her personal life at this point, or maybe both. But anyway, her head's spinning, and so she says uh, in verse 19, uh, Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. You know, something supernatural is going on. So our fathers, uh, they worshipped on this mountain. She points to Mount Gerizim right there. Uh, they worship on this mountain. You Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. So, so what's up? What's the right place? And so Jesus says to her, he says, well, trust me, woman, um, a time is coming when you will worship the Father and this, enter this new relationship with God, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. It's not going to be about where you worship. It's going to be more about how you worship. And he said, you Samaritans, you worship what you don't know. Um, the Samaritans... They only believed in the first five books of the law, Moses, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They believed that was the Bible. They didn't believe anything else after that was the Bible. And so as a result of that, they knew about the true God, but they, it was very limited. They didn't have all the things that happened later. And so he says, uh, you Samaritans, you worship what you don't know. But then look what he says, very important statement. He says, um, we worship, we Jews, we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, I want to take a time out, do a little sidebar here, okay? I don't want to make a big point of this in the sermon, but I don't want you to miss something. In our culture today, there's a lot of people that are hungry for God, but deep in our culture is a conviction that it doesn't really matter which God you choose or how you worship him. Deep in our culture today, there's a belief that, you know, it doesn't really... The, matter, like, as long as you're sincere, it doesn't really matter whether you're a Hindu, a Buddhist, uh, whether you're New Age, a Christian, Jew, uh, you're uh, a Muslim. Uh, it doesn't really matter because there's only one God. We're all describing the same God here, and it's all different ways to talk about the same God, and so it doesn't really matter how you worship him because it's ultimately the same. And what I want to point out that Jesus says that is patently false, what Jesus says is, no, you Samaritans, you worship what you don't know. He says salvation is from the Jews. In other words, in human history, God has chosen the Jewish nation to be a conduit of spiritual truth. It's through the Jewish nation God revealed himself to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, to David, to the Old Testament prophets, to the law. And so we come to know who God is, and then ultimately through the Messiah coming for the Jewish nation. So this is what Jesus is saying. He says, no, no, um, listen, uh, you need to come to God, the God of the Jewish nation, that God. It's important. The salvation comes from the Jews. Okay. okay, so anyway, back to the conversation. So, he says, uh, 
verse 23, but a time is coming and is now come. In other words, we're entering into a new era in human history when the true worshipers, people who really know God, they will worship the Father in two things. They'll worship in spirit and they'll worship in truth. He says, in other words, we're entering into a new era in human history where you're going to come to know God and you're going to come to know him through the power of his spirit, the Holy Spirit, Remember what he said in John chapter 3, you have to be born again by the Spirit to enter the kingdom. So you're going to be, you're going to enter, you're going to worship God coming up through the power of his Spirit, and you're going to know him in truth as he really is. He says we're entering into a new era of human history that I, Jesus, am inaugurating to where you're going to enter into a new relationship with God. It's a firsthand relationship where you come to know him in spirit and in truth. This is the water that's going to satisfy you. You see, this is the, the, the living water, this new relationship that he's talking about. Now, he goes on and says, God is spirit, and therefore uh, his worshipers must worship in spirit. They must worship in truth. And so all this talk about this coming era, this new time in history, makes her think about the Messiah. Because the Jews believed, I mean, the Samaritans, they also believed a Messiah would come, a little different than the Jewish Messiah, but they believed in a Messiah. And so she says to him, well, I know that Messiah, called Christ, uh, Christ is the Greek term that means Messiah. It's just the Greek translation. So I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming, and when he comes, he'll explain everything. So, you're, man, you're, dear prophet, you're raising up a lot of important issues here, but I know when the Messiah comes that he'll explain it. Now, here's the fascinating thing. Jesus is out in the middle of nowhere. He's sitting at a well, one-on-one with a Samaritan woman, um, and here with this woman who's been married five times, far from God, living with the man, he chooses just to be the very straightforward and tell her what he tells almost no one in his whole ministry. He says, I'm the guy. It's really interesting. Back in Jerusalem, in Galilee, he will not say this. He will, you will not find Jesus say this, I am the Christ. You will not find him saying this because the Jews had this, all these ideas of what the Messiah was like and they were all messed up. And so he would, he would use different language to talk. He would use, like he'd always call himself the son of man because that was like, that was neutral language. It was new language. And, and, and so he could kind of fill it with messianic meaning of what the true Messiah was. But he would not say, you will not find him saying, I am the Christ. But here's what this woman, far from God, married five times, living with the man, he just likes flat out like I'm the guy. Just straightforward. Speaks to her heart. And so he says, uh, verse 26, Jesus declared, I who speak to you, I'm he. I'm the guy. I'm the Messiah. Okay, so this is a great story, and next week, we're going to come back to this story, and we're going to see what happens next, like what happens with this lady, how did she respond, what happens in her life, and it's a great story. But today, in the time that we have together, what I want to do is focus on this topic of soul thirst. Like, you do understand this, right, that deep in the heart of the human race, there is a very deep thirst. It's a thirst for meaning, for purpose for life, for joy, for peace, for love, for, for fulfillment. And, and Jesus talks to us today about what does it take to get that very deep thirst that we all share? Like, what does it take to get that satisfied? And so I want to see what Jesus has to say. And there's kind of three steps that he says that we need to take in order to get this satisfied. So there in your note sheet is a section called Soul Thirst, the Search for Satisfaction. And I want to take some time just to unpack this. Let's dive into what does Jesus say about this. Number one, the first thing he says is that we need to start with the source. 
that, that if you want to be satisfied, you need to go to the right source for your satisfaction. Now, I want you to catch something. When he enters in this conversation with this woman, he assumes that she is thirsty. Uh, he doesn't ask her, hey, by the way, are you thirsty? Uh, just curious. Kind of looking for something in your life. He assumes she's thirsty. In fact, in this passage, Jesus assumes that the whole human race is thirsty. He, he assumes there's something wrong with the human race. He assumes that we're born into this world with this deep thirst, and he makes this incredible claim that he alone can satisfy it. Would you stop and think about it? Is either uh, amazing or he's crazy. Not a lot of middle ground. Um, when someone says, like, I alone can satisfy the thirst of the human race, um, we, we're either dealing with God or we're dealing with a crazy man. And so he makes this incredible claim, and I want you to see where this claim comes from. I want to unpack this a little bit. Um, I pointed out when we went through this passage that this term living water is not a new term, that this was a term that they used to describe running water. So, so that wouldn't have been strange for her. But it's also not the first time it's used in the Bible. Uh, God uses this term to describe his relationship with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. So when Jesus uses it that day, he comes out to the well, sees a woman coming, he wants to have an encounter with her, he's going to use this well analogy to talk about this need in her life. And it comes from the Old Testament. And I want you to turn there. It's in the book of Jeremiah, uh, chapter 2. Now, Jeremiah 2 is a pretty big chapter, I mean, pretty big book. And so chances of just flipping there are pretty good. But if you're new at this, uh, there's a table of contents, and uh, you don't want to miss it. So Jeremiah 2. Now, let me set the stage. In Jeremiah 2, God's talking to the nation of Israel, and he says to them, hey, there was a time, there was a place when you loved me more than anything else. There was a time in your history where you would follow me anywhere. So when I first brought you out of bondage in Egypt, I was your God. You were like a young lover. Uh, uh, I was like a husband. You were like a young bride. You would follow me anywhere. He says, but what's happened now in Jeremiah's time is you as a nation, you've left me. You've run after other lovers to try to satisfy your life, the deepest soul thirst in your life. And he said, as a result of that, your lives have become thirsty and barren. And so he's going to use this analogy of thirst to get at their lives. And so he says in chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, the, the word of the Lord came to me, came to Jeremiah, and God says to him, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Like, take this message, Jeremiah, go to Jerusalem. Here's what I want you to say. And here, so here's God speaking. And he says, I remember the devotion of your youth. I remember when you first came to me as a nation. I remember how you loved me. Um, how as a bride you loved me. And you follow me through that the desert out in the wilderness, through a land not so like, I remember this love you had for me. I was your passion. I was your number one thing you wanted to please. And, and we had this amazing relationship. You'd follow me anywhere. I remember those days. Of course, now in Jeremiah's time, it's no longer those days. They've run after other lovers. He uses that analogy. And so if you skip down to verse 13, he sums it up this way. He says, my people... 
verse 13, my people have committed two sins. They've made two mistakes. Number one, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water. Does that sound familiar? Exactly what Jesus said today. I'll give you a spring of living water. God says, they've forsaken me. He says, I was supposed to be to Israel, this spring of living water. I was supposed to satisfy their deepest thirst in life. He says, but they've forsaken me. And what have they done? They dug their own cisterns. Now, what's a cistern? A cistern was a, a hole in a rock you dig out, carve out. It was a, maybe it was a, a, a hole in the ground, a big hole in the ground. You'd plaster it in. And during the rainy season, you would divert rainwater into the reservoir. And you would save that water so you would have water during the dry season, the summer. You didn't have faucets. You didn't have the Colorado River to bail you out. And so you would, you would put this water in there. Now, of course, it would get old. It would get dank. It would get stale. It would get mossy. It would have bacteria. It got bugs in it. But it was better than nothing. And so, but the, of course, the worst case scenario is that you'd create this cistern, you divert the water in during the rainy season, you come back, say, in July or August or September when you're out of water and you desperately need this, and there is a crack that's developed in your cistern. And, and so all the water that you thought was in there has seeped away. And, and God says, this is what my people have done. They have committed two sins, two mistakes. Number one, they, they left me, like the, the, one who, the only one who could satisfy them, the fountain of living water, and they've, they've gone to other cisterns, to other gods, to try to get satisfaction. And yet they're broken cisterns. They don't even hold water. And so it's left them thirsty. And that's the condition of the nation, you see. And so Jesus picks up this phrase. And he talks to this woman at the well. And he offers her living water to satisfy this deepest thirst. Now, the interesting thing is that we don't really know her history. We don't really know exactly where she was spiritually. But from all appearances, it would look as if she had spent her life trying to satisfy the thirst in her life through relationships with men. Now, some of you are going to relate to this. Hopefully, the women. Some of you are going to relate to this that what she had done over the course of her life is she had looked for satisfaction in life with the relationship with men one after another. Are you with me? That little girl, she grows up. She can't wait to get married someday to have a husband. That day finally comes. And for a while, that water satisfies her. And then, and then something happens that marriage. We don't know, did he die? Did she divorce him or divorce her? We don't know what happened. Somehow that marriage ends. And so she's thirsty again, and so now she begins looking for another man to fill that void. And so she finds him, and she thinks, this time, this, this is the one that's going to satisfy me. And so now that marriage goes bad, and so she's thirsty again. And so now she goes after another man, right, because this is her paradigm. She needs a man, see? And finally comes to a place in her life where she doesn't even care if he'll marry her or not. She'll just live with him. She, she's just looking to satisfy this thirst in her life with a man. Now, this is very common. If you look at it as a human race, that when we have this deep thirst for life, for meaning, for purpose, for joy, for satisfaction, one of the most common things we look for to satisfy it is a relationship with another person. 
That's why our music is all filled with the songs of romance. Because, because when you first fall in love with someone, it feels like you found the answer to life, doesn't it? It feels like this is it. This is what I've been looking for. This gives me joy. This makes me get up in the morning. This makes the, the, the sky is bluer. You know, the moon is brighter. It's like this is what life's about. And so, so as a culture, we often run after if we could just find the one true love, that would satisfy. For others of us, maybe it's not that one true love. It's just if I could just have some really close friends. Well, well we're married now. If we could just have children, my life would be fulfilled. Or it's like they grow up. If I could just have grandchildren, you know, and then that would be my life was fulfilled. And so we, we go through life, and we think that if we could just find the right relationship, this deep soul thirst that we've been born with, this is the way to quench it. You see, it's one of the, the primary other cisterns that we go to to satisfy this. Of course, the problem is, is there's no human relationship that can satisfy that deepest part of us because it's, we're created by God and it's the life that he alone gives that can really satisfy that deepest part. There are a couple of counselors, famous Christian counselors, and they talk about this in their book, Relationships. I put this quote there for you. They write it like this, the parrots. Uh, there is in all of us, at the very center of our lives, an aching, a burning in the heart that is deep and it's insatiable. Okay, this is the thirst Jesus is talking about. Most often we try to quench that yearning with a human relationship. We, we try to fill in the gap of our existence with a friend or a lover. But no human relationship, no matter how wonderful, can ever complete us. Why? Because human beings can never make us whole. It's God who satisfies the ultimate longing for belonging and gives us meaning in our lives. This is what Jesus is talking about. He's offering her this relationship. But you stop and think. For, for other people, it's not a relationship. Maybe the way you're wired, it's not that way. You know, every one of us, when we're born, as we grow up, we have a theory. We try out different theories of what it will take to satisfy this soul thirst. And so for some of us, it's high achievement. Get straight A's in school. Get the, get the right college, get the right job, get, uh, rise up in the job, get the corner office, make the money. For others, it's get the right stuff, get the car, get the house, uh, uh, get the, the jet skis, get the motorcycle, get the whatever that is, you know. Uh, for others, it's, it's power. If I could just rise to a place of power in this organization and, and control, that's what will make me happy. For some, it's pleasure. Hey, if you just party hardy every night, Different woman every weekend. This is what it's about. That, you see? And so as a culture, as a world, what we do is we go through life and we all have a theory of what it will take to satisfy this thirst. But here's what happens. I'll, I'll tell you this. It works for a while. It doesn't it? It works. You get the straight A's. You get into the college. You know, yes, I'm going to Berkeley. Yes, I'm going to Harvard. I'm getting to UCLA. I can't believe it. You get the corner office, you get the job, you get the, the career, you find the person, you fall in love. You get the lifestyle, and for a while, you drink of it, and ah, oh, I'm satisfied. This is it. This is the life. Then all of a sudden, you wake up one day, and it's like, I'm thirsty. Like, I need more. I, that's not it. There's something else, you see? And so Jesus comes and says, trust me in this. You were made for a relationship with God. And trust me in this, that I alone 
can satisfy that. You are not going to, you can run after other gods all you want, but you will wake up one day and you will be find out they are broken cisterns. The only way for you to be satisfied in life is to pursue me, to passionately love me, to give your life to me, run hard after me, to make me your number one love, your deepest passion, your highest priority. That's the only way it's going to satisfy this deepest part of you. And so this is the claim Jesus makes. Now the question is, do we believe him? Do we believe him? You might say, well, what do you mean? Like, I'm, I'm a Christ follower. I, I gave my life to Christ. Have you really? Because here's what I find is so many times as Christ followers, we alternate between Jesus and our cisterns. And we go and we, we try Jesus for a while, and then we get, oh, okay, let's go try this cistern for a while, and and we go different directions, and we wake up thirsty, you see? And so Jesus comes. He says, trust me in this. Trust me in this. I know you're thirsty, and I have a relationship with God. It's in spirit and truth. It's, it's the only thing that can satisfy you. Okay, so that's number one. You have to go to the right source. The second thing he says, and I love this, one of my favorite parts of the story is we have to let go of the past. One of the favorite things I love about the story is uh, this, this woman. Um, she, she's had a hard life, hasn't she? You know, sometimes we read through the Bible so superficially, like, okay, she's married five times, great, living with a man. Okay, what's next? Like, like, just take time to think about that. Some of you have gone through a divorce. Pretty much almost everyone I've ever talked to, it was one of the worst experiences of their life. Incredibly painful. And it just goes on and on. And it just seems like it's never really over, and it's hard. Now, imagine going through five husbands. Now, we don't know. Some die. Some, we don't really know the whole story. But this woman has gone through a world of hurt. And on top of that, she's brought a lot of it on herself. We don't know all her story. But we do know this. She's living with a man, which in that culture, clearly, this is not what God's will for your life is. And so clearly, she's, she's far from God. She's doing her own thing. She's trying to, to make her life work drinking from these other cisterns. And so here she is, a woman who's messed up her life in a world of hurt, a ton of regret. It's one of the greatest pains in life is the pain of regret. This woman is in a, lot, in a world of hurt. She's brought on, to, to some degree at least, herself, far from God. And here's the thing I love about Jesus is he could care less. He doesn't care that she's been married five times. That's not going to hold him back. He doesn't care she's living with a man. All he wants to do is change your life. Like he has just come to give her a new life. He's not really concerned with other stuff. Well, I don't really care where you've been. You know, here's the water of life. Do you want it or not? You see? You see, I think for a lot of us, even as Christ followers, we believe that the water of life, it comes in a jar, and it comes in this beautiful bottle, and in the bottom there's small print. And the small print says, offer not good for people who X. You fill in the blank. You see, see, Jesus is offering her the water of life, and he doesn't care what her past is. It doesn't affect his offer. Here's the thing. For us to receive the water of life, we have to let go of our past. See, Jesus is not going to hold your past against you. The question is whether you will hold your past against you. 
You see, for a lot of us, honestly, we, we come to Christ, and what we believe is, well, maybe he'll let us in. Maybe I can be part of his kingdom. Um, maybe I can be you know, forgiven, come to know him, but I'm sure, he'll, I, I'm sure he'll want me to sit on the back row. Okay? No offense to those of you back there. Um, you know that, that okay, I, okay, this offer of life, of this whole new life and satisfying me, I'm sure that's for people that are not like me, you know? You don't understand. I've had four abortions. You don't understand my drug uh, background. You don't understand in college I slept with so many women that I, I can't remember their names. You don't understand I ripped off my company. You don't understand I neglected my wife and I caused a divorce. You don't understand that I had three affairs and it led to the ruin. You don't understand my, my kids won't even talk to me now because, and we go on and on and say, but you don't understand. They're like this offer that Jesus is making is an awesome offer, but it's not for people like me. Read the small print on the bottle of river of life, of water of life. It says not for people. It does, this offer does not apply for these kinds of people. And so what happens is even as Christ followers, we often hold back from pursuing him because we don't really believe that we could have that kind of relationship in spirit and truth. We believe others can have that kind of relationship because they don't have our past, but we can't have it. You see, we don't deserve it. There's something there. Well, the fact is, yeah, we don't deserve it, but it's not about deserving. It's just the offer. He is just who he is. You see, this is what I love about Jesus. It's just who he is. It's just the way he is. He's amazing. It's just the way he is. Uh, back in John chapter 1, in this opening statement, John said something about Jesus. He, he said this. Uh, he said, no man has seen God at any time. Verse 18. But, but God who's at the Father's side, God the one and only who's at the Father's side, he's made him known. And when we were back there, I told you this. This is the opening statement of John's summary of everything. What John's saying is that no one really knows what God's like except Jesus. If you want to know what God's like, you look at Jesus. And at that point, I challenged you. I said, as we go through the gospel of John, over and over, we're going to see God in action. There's God in action. There's what God looks like when he becomes one of us. And we're going to have to decide, do we hold on to our conviction of who God is, or do we give it up and say, no, this is who God is? And one of the things that John said in that opening statement is he said, by the way, if I only have two words to describe this Jesus, they would be grace and truth. He's just kind of overflowing with grace. It was just like, like a, a foaming uh, root beer, whatever, just kind of overflowing with grace. Well, well, what does it look like to be full of grace? It looks like this story. It looks like Jesus crossing the street, setting up a personal appointment, getting rid of his disciples, sending them into town to talk with a Samaritan woman who'd been married five times and currently living with a man far from God, but Jesus doesn't give a rip because all he wants is to give her a new life. You see? And so the question is, what keeps you up at night? Is there anything from your past that deep in your heart you believe, maybe you can know Christ, maybe you can be a Christian, but you can never really full on kind of experience him like, like others can because there's something in your past. What is it? And I think what Jesus would say is you got to let it go. Whatever it is, let it go. It doesn't matter to me, so you got to let it go. Doesn't matter to me, doesn't matter to you, you see? Can you receive that grace? Can you in your life, can you receive that kind of grace? Have you ever received that grace in your life? Do you know what that is? To meet God and find out that he's like Jesus. 
And he doesn't care where you've been. He only cares where you're going. And he wants to give you a new life. That's the second, the second step. I have to let go of our past. Now, number three, the third step is that we have to embrace the truth. And by this, I mean we have to embrace the truth, especially about ourselves. I don't know if you noticed this when we went through this story, but there's this fascinating dialogue where Jesus makes his offer to her, living water. She says, yes, I'd like it. Would you please give it to me? And the first thing he does, he says, okay, I'd like you to go get your husband. Now, this is a sore topic for her. Uh, She shouldn't have a husband. She's living with a guy. Um, In fact, she's been married five times. Sore topic. And yet Jesus surfaces it. Here's the living water. Okay, I'd like it. Okay, go get your husband. Now, why did he do that? Like, why does Jesus bring up this sore topic, this painful topic in her life? I'll tell you why. I don't think it has anything to do with shaming her. It has nothing to do with holding it over her head, rubbing her nose in it. But here's what Jesus knows. Jesus knows we can never move into our future until we are honest about our past. You see? And unless we're willing to call things by their true name and to face the truth about ourselves, we're never able to receive this new life that he has for us. And this is true at the beginning of our Christian life. This is what confession of sin is all about. Like one of the things that happens when you first come to Christ is you confess, Lord, I've, I've blown my life. I've lived myself. I've done this. I've done that. And Would you forgive me for these sins? And, and it, it's the start of our Christian life, but it's also the ongoing pattern of our Christian life. Why? Because until we embrace the truth about ourselves, we're not ready to receive this new life. Like, for example, there, there's some of you here who God has some living, more living water for you. He's got a whole new level of relationship. But, but for you to receive it, you're going to have to admit the truth about yourself in the area of anger. Like, like there's some of you here, you have an anger problem. But, but that's not how you look at it. You'll defend it. It's not, you don't have a problem. It's that your wife pushes your buttons. Um, you don't have a problem. Everyone needs to blow off little steam. Um, you don't have a problem. The problem is everyone else just takes it too seriously. I'm just, just words, you see. But until you embrace the truth about yourself, I have an anger problem. You can't receive the new living water Jesus has. He wants to come and satisfy that place that anger's been. You see, he wants to take away that anger and bring peace where there's anger. But that river of living water can't flow to you to you face the truth that you have a problem with anger. There's some of us in this room, we're addicted to, to porn. And so we go on night after night, late at night when the rest of the family's in bed. And we go on and we go to drink deeply of these other cisterns. That, that somehow we will satisfy a thirst that's inside of us that seems insatiable at times. And Jesus wants to satisfy that thirst. He wants to help you. He wants to give you a new life. But until you realize and admit it's a problem and stop defending it because everyone does it, you will never be set free. You've got, you've got uh, uh, some of you out there, it's like you're pretending you didn't have those abortions. You're just... Hoping it just 
No one knows. No one knows you out here. It happened in New York. It was a long time ago. No one knows, and no one needs to know, and, and you just want to pretend it didn't happen, but it's eating away at you because deep inside, you've never received forgiveness. You've never really seen God say, I forgive you. Let it go, and so you pretend it's not there, and it's not a part of your life. And Jesus has a river of living water he wants to give you, but you have to embrace the truth. You see? And so Jesus comes to this woman and he says, I offer you the living water. And she says, yes, I want it. And the first thing he says is, go call your husband. Confront your past. Be honest about what's happening in your life because only then the truth can set us free. Does it make sense? Yeah, and so, so here comes Jesus. He comes to us as a church today and he says, Church at Rocky Peak, I want you to drink deeply. I want to satisfy your life. But here's what you need to do. Number one, you need to pursue me as your true source. Let go of your cisterns. Number two, you need to let go of your past. I've let it go. I need you to let it go. Trust me. And number three, he says, I need you to be honest about your life apart from me because only then can the truth set you free. You bow your heads with me. I, I want to give us some time to process this. This is one of the most powerful teachings of Jesus. I, I don't want to just end with a quick prayer and then go to worship. I want to give you a couple minutes just to process this with God. I, I want to ask you two or three questions here as we, in the stillness of this moment, just you and God, and give you a chance to talk to him, encounter him, to meet with him. And so here's my first question. I'm asking you, who is your source for satisfaction in your life? Like, if you're honest, it's just you and God. There's no one listening in, but what do you believe will truly make you happy? Do you believe that pursuing Jesus is your number one priority in life? Do you believe that if you trust him, he will satisfy you? Or do you believe that you need other cisterns that need to come before him? You'll follow him most of the time, but when push comes to shove and the tough decisions, oh, but I have to date him. I have to do this. I have to do that at a job. I've got to do this. And so you, when push comes to shove, you're still drinking in other cisterns. What's your source? Let me ask you another question. Do you have anything in your life that's holding you back in your past? Is there something inside of you you think you can never really know God in spirit and truth because you did this, you did that? Jesus isn't holding it against you, but you're holding it against yourself. Today, you need to let it go. God wants to take that from you and set you free. How about this? Is there an area of your life you've not been honest? Your marriage is a wreck. You keep pretending it isn't. Kids are out of control. You're in denial. You've got a drug problem, some addiction problem. You love your work more than your family, you've neglected, whatever the thing is. It can be a million things. But your life is broken and you're not admitting it, and so he can't fix it. Just in the stillness of this moment, I want to ask you to go to him as that woman did that day and ask him for the living water.
And now as our eyes are closed and our heads are bowed, can you, can you hear the words of Jesus over your life? Can you hear him today coming to you and offering you living water? Can you look into his eyes and see that he doesn't care where you've been, he only cares where you're going? How about this? Will you have the courage to answer his question when he says, go get your husband? Will you tell him the truth about your life, where it's broken so he can fix it? Remember what John told us, that he didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. He's not come to condemn your life. He's come to save your life. But you have to decide whether to drink deeply from his river of living water or whether to go to your cisterns. That's something only you can decide. Oh, Lord, as your church called in your name, born again by your spirit, led by your word. In the quiet of this moment, we come to you as your church. And we pray, God, that you teach us how to drink deeply from the living water, to leave our cisterns, to leave the past, to be honest about who we are apart from you, that we might be satisfied. We know that's why you came, to give us this water. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.